welcome back to the Paterno Fellows podcast, the podcast made by Paterno Fellows for Paterno Fellows. My name is Kate Howarth. I am a new addition to the team. And just as a quick introduction to who I am, I am a senior in a five-year integrated undergraduate studies program, concurrently pursuing my master's in international affairs, bachelor's in security and risk analysis, bachelor's in international politics, and a minor in Chinese language. I am so excited for our episode today on the conflict in the Ukraine, as you could probably guess from my majors. And our guest today is Dr. Kathy Wanner, a professor of history, anthropology, and religious studies here at Penn State. Her research largely focuses on the politics of Eastern Europe, conflict mediation, and human rights, especially in Ukraine, but more broadly in the region and former Soviet Union states. Dr. Warner is the author or editor of six books on Ukraine and has received awards from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Science Foundation, the Social Science Research Council, and many others. In addition, our other Paterno Fellows podcast member, Emma, will be joining us for this conversation. And with that, we are ecstatic to welcome Dr. Kathy Warner to the podcast today. Hi, Dr. Warner. Hi there. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very pleased to be here. Great. So, as everyone knows, uh, there is a pretty major conflict going on between uh, the Russian Federation and the Republic of Ukraine right now. And so we we're just hoping to ask you some questions and get your take on the situation and just have a conversation around it. Uh, so, yeah, so I guess we could start with. So you have given and participated in several panels and talks since the beginning of Russia's troop buildup on the Ukrainian border. So what are your thoughts on the conflict as it stands today? Well, I'm tremendously uh, dismayed and concerned about the tremendous loss of human life and also the unbridled destruction, uh, especially of uh, entirely non-military um, targets that have been hit and in many cases uh, destroyed. And by that, I mean just today, for example, a very large city theater in Mariupol, it's a city in uh, southern Ukraine, uh, was where hundreds of people had taken refuge, uh, was bombed. And so there's, of course, no reason to bomb a theater. And there is doubly no reason to bomb a theater when it is housing refugees. So it's that's it's the type of uh, war this is shaping up to be and the kinds of uh, damage that it is inflicting that um, greatly, greatly concerns me. Yeah. So well, speaking of, um, especially in Mariupol, um, the Russian the Russians have been uh, shelling and indiscriminately hitting a lot of civilian targets, which has been really concerning. Um, so, you know, what do you think? the goal is for Russia and for Putin in attacking these sites? Um, like what, what message do you think he's trying to send with this? Well, initially, uh, a great many scholars, myself included, uh, compared the uh, Russian support for separatist forces in Eastern Ukraine, specifically in the Donbass region, to earlier Russian efforts to try to destabilize the country of Georgia and before that Moldova um, by creating these uh, disputed territories within the country of Georgia and within Moldova um, and by creating what were called frozen conflicts. In other words, unresolved disputes 
over territory. It became unclear sort of who 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 does this territory belong to? Who is governing this territory? These became sort of sites of um, sort of sub-state structures that were fairly lawless. So initially the thought was that the intention was to protect, perhaps either continue, continue to destabilize Ukraine and expand perhaps these disputed territories to include, for example, to bring it from the east to further south to include this major port, Mariupol, for example. Um, But as of late, given the indiscriminate and extensive destruction that has been inflicted on several Ukrainian cities, more recently, the comparisons have gone to Grozny, which is a republic within the Russian Federation that has attempted to secede. And that led to two wars, the second of which uh, resulted in something close to literally the leveling of the the capital city of Chechnya, um, Grozny, that is. Um, And and also subsequent to that, the Russian attacks in Syria, which specifically led to a really massive damage of the city of Aleppo in Syria. In both of those instances, um, Russian military inflicted damage that begins to approximate obliteration of those cities, um, which of course implies and and in fact uh, accurately reflects the enormous civilian casualties and the kind of attacks that have been launched most most intensely against Mariupol in the south, but also Kharkiv, that's a major city in eastern Ukraine, um, bespeaks a level of destruction that goes so far beyond military targets that it is really of great concern. Um, this will um, significantly hamper any um, uh, any kinds of uh, attempts to uh, develop and, and strengthen Ukrainian society. I mean, they're at the point where they have to um, now rebuild schools, universities, roads, airports. I mean, you name it. Basically, uh, in the entire infrastructure in several different urban centers. Yeah, I think that I think that bringing up Syria is a really interesting um, point, considering the number of Syrian fighters who are now traveling to the Ukraine to join in the fight for Russia. And even the comparisons that have been made between Russia's military campaign in the Ukraine and in Syria, and there just being a lot of similarities in the bombing patterns and the tactics used um, with how uh so that kind of ties a bit into the next question i had which was with the recent strikes near the polish border and with russia asking china for military assistance in addition to you know the number of syrian fighters who are coming in and just the integration of different uh countries into russia's efforts um you know what do you what do you think he's hoping to gain here like what what is he trying to accomplish? And, you know, is there any disconnect between what 
what you think that Putin is actually trying to accomplish and what he is telling the media and the world that he's trying to accomplish? Well, I think um, I wish I could get inside Mr. Putin's head, but I suspect that from the start, he um, he made a major miscalculation. Um, I think he thought that uh, it would be fairly easy for him to uh, invade Ukraine and um, for his forces to take the Ukrainian capital and for him to remove the uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky, who is the president of the country, and install uh, a new leader who would be much more favorably inclined towards uh, Mr. Putin and towards Kremlin policies. I think he thought that that, uh, that the Russian military could easily overpower uh, any kind of Ukrainian armed forces, uh, especially at the time of the Russian incursion into Ukraine in 2014. The Ukrainian military was indeed very uh, poorly equipped, poorly trained, underfunded, and uh, in many other ways at a highly disadvantaged position. But still, they managed to engage Russian forces. And I think what Mr. Putin underestimated was the extent to which uh, there was going to be, point one, uh, a broad uh, Ukrainian attempt to repel any kinds of incursions into Ukraine. And number two, the extent to which both the United States and Europe were going to be able to launch a, a coordinated response in the form of provisioning the Ukrainian armed forces and in terms of economic sanctions. And you mentioned Syrian fighters going to Russia to assist Russian armed forces. Of course, there are a great many uh, volunteers, mercenaries, and people from uh, around the world that have gone to Ukraine um, to support the Ukrainian armed forces. So this is rapidly escalating into a far larger war that has meaning and relevance uh, far beyond Ukraine. And one hopes that we can stop this. I would not, and I don't think anybody wants to see continued escalation and continued involvement uh, of other peoples and other countries and other governments in this war. And that also... Yeah, that's definitely... <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, Emily. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I think you made a really great point there on how valiantly I think the Ukrainians are fighting back. And I think the whole world, I mean, the whole world is watching right now and seeing um, how Russia hasn't easily been able to take the capital city yet. And I just wanted to ask what your thoughts are on um, how the Ukrainians are fighting back and um, what tactics they're using um, and how effective you think this strategy is. I think this goes to the heart of the matter. Um, they're fighting. It, this is really um, an all hands on deck kind of a response to the Russian invasion. Uh, and one very interesting thing to me is the way in which this war is being fought. I mean, there are a great many uh, people who, for a variety of reasons, um, cannot take up arms. They're not trained or they're not young enough or what have you. Um, 
but that means they're using other kinds of tactics to participate in the defense of their country. And one thing, one arena in which I believe Ukrainians have been tremendously um, successful is in the war for the hearts and minds of the global public. Um, being in this tremendously disadvantaged position militarily, right? the Russian population is three times the size of Ukraine's and their military is incomparably larger and they have far more weapons and on every other measure, they are really outflanked. So Ukrainians have, for example, turned to the internet, to communicating via social media, to bring the war to everyone. And I think they have very successfully communicated what this war is doing to them. And in the process, it begins to communicate what this war could be doing to other countries, to democracy, to the rule of law. In short, they have communicated the threat that they are under and the danger to their own aspirations for a democratic form of government uh, that is peaceful. And they have succeeded in sharing that predicament with the rest of the world. And I think that's one of the reasons why there has been such a tremendous outpouring of of interest and sympathy. And above all, the will to act, whether it's simply by donating to various causes or at a bare bones minimum following uh, and participating via um, at least bearing witness and being aware of what is going on in Ukraine. This kind of global involvement um, in in a highly direct, personalized way is uh, a new way of um, experiencing armed conflict. And I think this um, this immediacy that Ukrainians have, have been able to create Im- begins to explain why um, the tremendous global response is different in this conflict than it has been. For example, we mentioned already Aleppo and Syria or Grozny before it or uh, Georgia and and uh, and Moldova before that, and that's just within the region. Um, just today, for example, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed Congress, and uh, you know he had on his stylized you know uh, army green uh, shirt, and there he was in the pre- his presidential office, and he's been able to document on a daily basis that he's still there, he's still working as are members of his government, and he made quite an impassioned plea for assistance to Ukraine. And I think he was effective in communicating how this is a war that is perhaps, uh, that places Ukrainians on the front lines, but it really involves us all because it is fundamentally about a style of governance. Who uh, can wield political power and the, the means by which they can wield it? He positioned this uh, confrontation um, as playing out between Ukraine and Russia, but really a confrontation between the ability to aspire to democratic forms of government and being rendered 
um, subject to authoritarian forms of government. In the course of his address to Congress today, for example, he showed very, very poignant graphic images of the uh, war crimes that are being committed in Ukraine. And by that, I mean the deliberate shelling of civilians and of civilian infrastructure. And then he turned and addressed the Congress in English. Um, and the speech ended with uh, a bipartisan support, which, as we all know, is quite rare in Washington these days, a rousing standing ovation uh, uh, display of support for Ukraine. And you even had members of Congress calling out in Ukrainian the um, what has become the signature uh, rallying cry for this war, Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine, followed by Geroyam Slava, glory to the heroes. Um, and I think this is an example of uh, how they, how Ukrainians out of the, des- you know, the desperate disadvantaged position in which they were in, they've managed to create a position of strength and they have built worldwide, well, not quite worldwide, but very, very close to it, substantial global support for uh, for their cause, um, and ha- and are still calling for yet more sanctions uh, against Russia. I agree that media seems to have a very uh, powerful um, reaction around the world. I mean, um, you see these heartbreaking images and videos um, in the towns and cities in Ukraine that have been bombed. Um, And it it does, as you say, um, tell the entire world the message of what's going on, like how inhumane Russia is being to Ukrainian citizens and just bombing um, maternity wards. Um, But on the other side, in Russia, um, recently the Kremlin has... Um, completely banned all independent media outlets, and um, and uh, Putin even said that he was going to place a maximum sentence of fifteen years in prison for anyone um, found to be spreading what the government considers to be "quote unquote" fake news, which effectively this eliminates the freedom of speech in Russia. Um, what are your thoughts on this, and what do you think? Um, Russians' true feelings are on this conflict? Well, I think the first uh, catastrophic crisis uh, is in Ukraine today. I predict that we're likely to face also a a similar kind of crisis in Russia. Um, This war has also polarized Russia, um, there is a block of the population that has uh, believed Russian media and believes the uh, official explanations for why this war was necessary and exactly how this war is playing out. And yet, because of the internet again, and because of, once again, the savviness of Ukrainians to 
to, on one level, turn Russian soldiers against their own uh, government. Um, and by that, I mean the effort, uh, for example, uh, they have now, when they capture Russian soldiers alive, they have filmed them, the, the, the soldiers stating their name, uh, their address, and whether they have parents or not. And then they have contacted those parents and said, we, you know, we have your son, um, and if you would like your son returned to you, you are welcome to come to Ukraine to collect him. And this, of course, makes for um, for those parents who are hearing that Russian forces have entered Ukraine so as to protect Russians. And when they hear from their son that that's not what they're doing, that this is a war and that they have been captured and that they are now prisoners of war, um, uh, it turns... It turns everything on its head and it creates something of another kind of crisis, certainly a crisis of confidence in their own government for many Russians. Um, perhaps you've heard that, uh, that Ukrainians have also set up a hotline for the parents of Russian conscripts. There's a, a, there's a military draft in Russia. There has always been. It's a mandatory uh, service of two years for young men. So a great many of the soldiers that are fighting this war are as young as 18-year-old conscripts uh, who very often had not been informed that they were going to Ukraine to fight uh, a war of conquest there. And so once parents begin to find out that this is, in fact, where a great many of their sons have been sent, uh, they have no way of finding out that news in Russia. But by virtue of the fact that Ukrainians have set up an out a hotline, which very often Russians hear about via friends who are abroad and then are via the Ukrainians able to find out information about their sons who are uh, soldiers in Ukraine, um, it continues to undermine faith in the Russian government. And for others who, uh, other Russian citizens who perhaps speak foreign languages or otherwise have greater access to the internet and alternative sources of information, they are uh, among the, now it's over 100,000 Russians that have left Russia. And with the closing of commercial airlines, the Potential destinations are increasingly limited, but huge numbers have gone uh, via train into Finland. Reportedly, some train tickets have been sold for up to $9,000 per ticket. Uh, it's possible still to fly to Armenia and in Georgia in some instances. Um, and it's very difficult to actually accurately um assess how many Russians have left, but estimates are clearly over 100,000. So in other words, I think that is testimony to not only the numbers of Russians who are against this war, but the Russians who are against it and have the financial and other means by which to express their dissatisfaction with their feet by leaving Russia. Um, there are, of course, other uh, untold numbers of Russians who are against this war, who for a variety of reasons uh, cannot leave and, uh, and, in, and in many instances have been intimidated enough to speak out against this war. Uh, but there's, I believe there will be a reckoning of sorts in Russia at some point 
to also account for this war. And if nothing else, it will leave in its wake a very, very divided, polarized society, one that uh, continues to endorse Mr. Putin and his means of establishing Russia's place in the world, and another contingent of Russians who uh, do not emphatically do not agree with those means and perhaps have lost confidence, if not entire confidence, in Mr. Putin's leadership. Yeah, that's been a really interesting phenomenon that we've been seeing, that it's not only refugees from Ukraine that are fleeing, but Russian refugees as well. I think that you know, and it's interesting even to speak with, um, you know, students who are of, of Russian descent. Like I have a very good friend whose parents immigrated from the Soviet Union and he has just expressed such disgust with Putin's government and has been, you know, attending every rally in support of Ukrainian students. And it's but it's also interesting to see on the flip side, the reports of those who support the invasion and them ad- adopting like the letter Z as um, this like symbol for supporting it is, is I think what I saw um, and which I think is personally ironic considering that Zelensky is the last name of the Ukrainian president. But, you know, it's it's been an interesting dichotomy to see both the Russians who support it and the Russians who don't. Um, I wanted to I wanted to circle back, though, to uh, the Ukrainian president Zelensky and how and also Ukrainians in general and how they've been handling the conflict um, because I I think that it's really helped them establish themselves as, you know, we are not the aggressors here. We are only defending ourselves um, and really undermining Putin's arguments um, about them being the aggressors on ethnic Russians in Ukraine. And so I think that, you know, it's, I, I was curious if, from what you knew of Zelensky prior to the conflict, since I know that, you know, for a lot of us, no one, I at least had no idea who he was before. You could have said that name to me a few weeks ago and I probably wouldn't have, a month or two ago probably, and I probably wouldn't have known who he was. So do you think that, you know, how he behaved and what, and his way of approaching the conflict as it's evolved, was that kind of expected from the perspective of someone who studied the region or was he kind of out of left field that wasn't really something that people saw coming. Well, he's quite an extraordinary character. Just to back up a bit about his his biography, uh, he's an entertainer. He's a comedian, um, and he starred in a television show called Servant of the People, in which um, he was meant to be sort of an ordinary guy who inadvertently uh, becomes president. Um, and... Uh, the last round of Ukrainian elections, um, it was almost sort of as a joke. Um, I apologize for the chimes there. Um, Initially, it was almost uh, a a gesture, an ironic gesture even. Um, He formed an actual political party called Servant of the People right after his television show. And the man who had played somebody who inadvertently became president uh, was the role he then took on in reality. That is to say, as an entertainer, he became a presidential candidate. Life imitates art, so on and so on. (laughs) Uh, But it all escalated from there. And remarkably, uh, he became um, 
a rather serious uh, political contender. And he uh, championed his candidacy as somebody who was, uh, you know, an, literally an ordinary citizen, someone who was not ensconced in the political machine. And it was his very um, outsider status that he trumpeted as his the advantage he had to offer. Um, Remarkably, when he stood for election, he was up against a seasoned politician who was highly experienced, a very successful businessman, Petro Poroshenko, who had tremendous name recognition. Um, But at the time, it was a genuinely democratic election to the extent that it was genuinely unclear who was going to win. But as the election turned out, not only did Zelensky win, but he won handsomely. So from this start, uh, you know, like all Ukrainian uh, politicians, I mean, initially there was a very brief honeymoon period, but Ukrainians were then quickly back to their uh, um, resounding criticism of their political leaders. Um, Having said that, once this war escalated in an acute wartime conflict, I think there is widespread gratitude for the leadership this man has offered. He has been successful in uh, rallying his countrymen, um, in reaffirming that Ukraine will win this war and explaining it in a compelling, convincing way, which I think partially begins to uh, explain why and how so many Ukrainians uh, have been willing to serve either in in an active military capacity or in a volunteer capacity on many, 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 many different levels to help support the war effort. Um, So I think he has proven himself to be uh, a leader who has been able to hold his own uh, on the world stage. And this is uh, an impressive accomplishment, especially under uh, dire, dire circumstances. Definitely. I I completely agree. It's been really impressive to see him step up in this way and become this kind of major world leader overnight, um, negotiating with all of these different, negotiating with other world leaders and, you know, speaking at Congress even today, um, going to the UN, everything like that, kind of more broadly, just because I was curious. So, as the troop buildup was happening and people were talking about, oh, you know, is Russia going to invade? Is Russia not going to invade? You know, did you make any predictions about the situation that were proven right? Did you make any that were proven wrong? Like what aspects of this have surprised you? Just kind of generally, I was curious. Well, it was a, you know, prior to the actual invasion, there was an utterly spectacular buildup of forces along the Ukrainian Belarusian border and then similarly on the eastern border. Um, Mr. Putin and Russian political culture is known for its spectacular displays of uh, whether it's military might or one need only think back to the Olympics in Sochi where they where Russia spent over a billion dollars on snow alone. So the spectacular display of military might um, for some people uh, was not a cause for alarm. Most importantly, I think for many Ukrainians, 
it was utterly inconceivable that Russia would invade Ukraine. If you remember, after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1996, Ukraine was also a nuclear power. But at that time, uh, with, with great encouragement from the United States, Ukraine handed over all of its nuclear weapons with the guarantee that should there ever be um, uh, a threat to Ukrainian sovereignty, the United States and Russia would come to Ukraine's defense. I think the Ukrainians were able to hand over those weapons and for the majority of the population to feel um, uh, at ease with that decision because it was understood that it was so improbable that both the United States and Russia would ever invade that it was possible with the guarantees from Russia and from the United States to ensure Ukraine's sovereignty that they were able to hand over nuclear weapons. So I think for a great many people uh, in Ukraine and certainly in Russia as well, um, the actual invasion was a shock. For myself, having studied both Soviet history and the so-called transition after the fall of the Soviet Union and the various covert forms of violence that have occurred throughout the region, I always thought that it was a very, very real possibility that violence um, could and would likely occur. I did not think this buildup of troops all along the northern and eastern borders and then the addition of warships in the Black Sea. So that pretty much makes Ukraine surrounded on three sides with only, uh, you know, with the borders on the on the western side, then with Poland, uh, Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania, uh, all NATO countries, uh, I believed that that bode very, very poorly for Ukraine. Yeah, it was definitely, I, I agree that definitely it was very, like not not boding well for what people were predicting was going to happen. Um, and it's really unfortunate to see that, you know, it's, it's come to this. Um, so kind of switching topics a little bit, you had previously led a seminar on the situation in Ukraine and Russia, focusing on the securitization of religion. And it was incredibly interesting, by the way. Um, but I wanted to focus on one point that you had made with Dr. Donna Bari that stuck me on stuck with me on how the conflict is not about NATO membership. Um, and so, you know, all we have seen from American media and even from Putin is, you know, it's about whether or not Ukraine is joining NATO. And so that point kind of stuck with me because I was a bit confused. So would you be able to elaborate on why the conflict is instead about EU membership as opposed to NATO membership? Well, the uh, the Maidan uh, protests were sparked because at the time the pro-Russian uh, president of Ukraine uh, refused to sign an association agreement with the European Union. And it was that first move, that Adamacy about um, pursuing a path to Ukrainian to European integration that led to the ouster of this pro-Russian president, 
That was followed in short order one month later by the Russian annexation of Crimea, and one month after that by uh, uh, Russian support for separatism in eastern Ukraine. So in other words, I think for Mr. Putin, what was a far more realistic, plausible, near-term prospect was integration in some form as an associate member or potentially even a full membership of Ukraine in the European Union. That was far more realistic than Ukrainian membership in NATO. Um, Ukrainian desire even to become a NATO member uh, was not at all significant until Russia began supporting separatism in eastern Ukraine in 2014. In other words, this was not a prominent um, uh, political goal within Ukraine. However, ensuring greater proximity to the European Union. This was a, a highly pronounced goal. But even European integration represents arguably maybe even a greater threat to Mr. Putin. Should Ukraine become a member of the European Union, they would then be obliged to adopt certain forms of legislation, certain laws that are going to have to ensure free and fair elections, uh, a far greater, um, uh, more redistributive and fair system of taxation, uh, reigning into a far greater extent the uh, levels of corruption within the government, all of these factors that have led to the creation of oligarchs, be they oligarchs in Ukraine or be they oligarchs in Russia. In short, if Ukraine were to be accepted into the EU, should it be able to create a democratic form of government that is governed largely by laws rather than personalized forms of power that can be used in an authoritarian style, should that example uh, be created and even thrive right on Russia's borders? I think Mr. Putin assessed, and I think this is a, right, a correct assessment, that that would be a far graver threat to his rule in Russia than Ukraine actually joining NATO. I think the problem for Mr. Putin and for a great many oligarchs is their wealth is so ill-begotten that they understand they must uh, see to it that this system uh, is maintained so that they will not land in prison. And it's for that reason that they are wedded to Mr. Putin and to his style of government. And to the extent that there is uh, active support for the Russian invasion among those who are otherwise well-informed, I think it is because they have a stake in this system, a stake to uh, maintain their wealth. And this is why we have sanctions. It's, 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 those sanctions are specifically designed to target the wealth of Mr. Putin's inner circle so that, for example, what they have at stake in terms of maintaining this system begins to pale when comparison to 
what they have at stake if they don't challenge Mr. Putin. Um, That's why the sanctions are so highly targeted towards a a comparatively small circle of of confidants of Mr. Putin's and his inner circle, as it's called. Um, So knowing that wealth is um, a big incentive for um, Russia to sort of take over Ukraine. What other aspects of Ukraine are there that makes Ukraine so attractive to Russia? What cultural, political, um, just any other aspects of Ukraine that um, just makes Ukraine that sort of prize for Russia? Well, it is important to note that um, the majority of the territory that is today Ukraine, um, has been in a single political space with Russia for centuries. Um, The independence of Ukraine uh, came about in 1991 with the fall of the USSR. Uh, There had been previous attempts on, on on, on the part of Ukrainians to achieve independence. They were obviously not successful. So this a common historical experience and the lack of any kind of border between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, in other words, there was a border to the extent that we have borders between states, right? One knows when you drive, you understand that you drive into New Jersey or into Ohio or into Pennsylvania. But there's certainly no sense that um, it's not like crossing an international border. That's the way the border was between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I should say before 2014, a very small portion even of the Ukrainian-Russian border was even marked, let alone controlled. Uh, There's similarity in terms of uh, language. I mean, Russian is widely, widely understood, if not spoken in Ukraine. Uh, There's, by and large, a common uh, Eastern Christian religious tradition that is shared uh, between Russians and Ukrainians. And when that then is combined with a a common historical experience, um, This has led to uh, a great many families, for example, uh, on the Ukrainian side, having relatives in Russia, or on the Russian side, having um, friends, colleagues, relatives in Ukraine. And that's why this war is also, um, uh, all of these relationships are also a terrible casualty of this war. Yeah, that's something that's been really painful to listen to and hear about is just the destruction of family relationships. And uh, I remember listening to something from the New York Times the other day where there was a son who was living in Ukraine and a father in Russia, and his father hadn't reached out to him at all after the invasion. And so he reached out to his father and his father, you know, did not believe him about what was going on because of the misinformation and the disinformation being distributed by the Russian government. Um, These stories are common. These stories are common. There's even at at a recent protest against this war, there was, I was speaking with a a student from Russia who uh, also called home to his parents uh, who did not believe his account of what was going on. Um, and this shatters family relationships, and it's even more intense um, when you have. Uh, it really started in 2014 with these various 
incursions into Ukraine, uh, where family members, um, let's say, in Russia were thrilled that Crimea came back to Russia. Um, and that was painful. Um, and so there are quite a lot has been lost in the course of this war. I think we knew that wars are really about destroying, destroying people, uh, destroying lives, uh, destroying livelihoods. Uh, and I think this war once again has reaffirmed that point, that above all else, uh, the commitment has to be towards diplomacy and towards negotiation. War and armed conflict is what needs to be avoided at all costs in all instances, because nothing good will come out of the militarization of a conflict. I completely agree. I, but even, even with that, I'm curious if you think that anything other than conflict could have been avoided in this situation, considering all of the efforts for diplomatic negotiations and talks between Putin and different uh, European leaders and with President Biden and with a number of other people, it just didn't, it didn't seem very plausible that there was a way to prevent Russia from taking this course of action. Do you, do you think that there was a way? Do you think that people could have tried harder to convince Putin otherwise? Like, was there a way to deter him? Well, you're right that in this instance, clearly there was no way to deter him. I mean, he had an absolute position and his position was that even though Ukraine is an independent country, it is not fully sovereign. It's he, Mr. Putin attempted to uh, impose the fact that Ukrainian foreign policy will be directed by Russia and it will not include NATO membership. And of course, from the Ukrainian side, uh, seeing themselves as a, an independent state and an independent state that has existed now for over 30 years, uh, they did not uh, wish to cede uh, their status of independence uh, and become the kind of satellite or vassal state to Russia that Mr. Putin was um, envisioning. So these two absolutist positions are proved irreconcilable. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why the response on the part of governments, multiple governments, has been to try to make it's so painful for any political leader to assume such maximalist positions and then to use military means to fulfill them as a means of discouraging anyone to pursue uh, or to have entertain the possibility that one state has the right to dictate the global status and uh, geopolitical stance of another country. Um, yeah, of course. And we, we know that you're very knowledgeable on this topic. And I attended your webinar when uh, you were um, 
talking about this before Russia invaded, and you made a lot of predictions about what would happen. And um, some of those things did come true. And um, so what I want to ask is, um, what are your predictions on the outcome of this current conflict? Um, Obviously, there is no doubt that there is already been irreversible damages, such as the loss of life and the tearing apart of families. Um, But do you see any sort of light at the end of this tunnel? And um, what do you hope to see for Ukraine in the future? Um, I'm afraid I, uh, I am... I see many, many, many problems. Uh, I think the first thing that has to happen is uh, there has to be a cessation of the bombing and a withdrawal of Russian forces. But even after that occurs, there's the obvious massive rebuilding of Ukrainian infrastructure that has to occur. But there's also other uh, initiatives that have to be undertaken. You cannot um, militarize an entire society, as it has been done here, um, and then quickly demilitarize it. In other words, um, there's something, uh, you court all kinds of other problems when uh, Ukraine itself becomes uh, flooded with weapons, flooded with people who perhaps have rudimentary understanding um, about how to use them, when the country becomes flooded with uh, mercenaries and volunteer fighters, and a kind of a stark gendered uh, division of labor. Men are fighters. Men from the age of 18 to 60 are the fighters, the defenders, and women are, uh, you know, in the kitchen cooking for them or in some other kind of secondary role. Um, in short, I see the kind of militarized. Um, cultural legacy that will be left in the wake of this war as something that will have to be uh, overcome. And by extension, um, a certain degree of reconciliation, not only certainly between Russians and Ukrainians, but even within Ukraine, um, you know, Russia is not going anywhere. It will forever be the northern neighbor. Um, and uh, it's going to be a very um, uh, difficult but necessary project to try to uh, mend the fence between uh, the two peoples and the two countries. Um, the wounds that have been inflicted and the disappointment is great on the Ukrainian side. Um And yet they will have to, on some level, um, engage in forms of reconciliation, uh, as has been the case in Bosnia, um, as has been the case in many other conflict situations. We certainly wouldn't want uh, the kind of prolonged tensions that we see uh, between North and South Korea, for example, or uh, between Israelis and Palestinians. We would not want to court that kind of a a scenario going forward. Um, And the only way to do that is to engage in widespread um, initiatives to forge a sense of reconciliation. But this is going to be a a difficult and um, a decades-long process. And 
that in, even in order for that process to begin or to uh, yield any kind of results, you need to have Russia be stable enough so that Russians themselves can participate in that uh, process. And um, as I mentioned, I mean, I think the immediate uh, catastrophe today is the armed conflict in Ukraine, but I think there will be um, very significant problems that erupt in Russia as a result of this conflict as well. And so I see Russia uh, now having entered into also a very, very difficult phase. So all of that by way of saying that there is much, much, much work to be done. And I think that this means that um, students at Penn State really need to become globally aware and globally engaged. I think COVID did quite a lot to show us that a virus that breaks out in China can shut down our own lives. And a conflict between two countries that are on the other side of the ocean can also uh, have reverberations for us as well. So it's really important for us to um, be aware and to be knowledgeable and to be engaged and to uh, be able to formulate our own informed understandings as to what's going on. It's ever more uh, imperative to be sharp and to be able to recognize the deep fakes, the alternative facts, the disinformation that's out there. Uh, and so in that spirit, I really think uh, there's much to be done uh, for those of us who do research in this part of the world, but also for all of the paternal fellows who are uh, studying uh, the world. Um, it's a great big place and it's a fantastically interesting place, but it is one that um, uh, has brought forth perils and those perils are increasingly our own. So we need to be aware. Yeah, that is a great point. Thank you so much, Dr. Warner. And with that, we can wrap it up. So thank you so, so much for coming on our podcast today and talking with us about the conflict in Ukraine. We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. It was a pleasure. You know, I used to run the Paternal Fellows and I miss being with students all the time. So I'm very, very pleased to do it. And thank you listeners for joining us for this conversation. Keep an eye out for the next edition of the Paterno Fellows podcast, wherever you get access. Thanks. Have a great week.